0: Thanks for joining us at Keys for SLPs, opening new doors for speech-language pathologists to better serve clients throughout the lifespan. A weekly audio course and podcast from SpeechTherapyPD.com. I'm your host, Mary Beth Hines, a curious SLP who embraces lifelong learning. Keys for SLPs brings you experts in the field of speech-language pathology, as well as collaborative professionals, patients, and caregivers to discuss therapy strategies, research, challenges, triumphs, and career opportunities. Engage with a range of practitioners from young innovators to pioneers in the field as we discuss a variety of topics to help the inspired clinician thrive. Each episode of Keys for SLPs has an accompanying audio course on speechtherapypd.com available for point 0.1 ASHA CEUs, We are offering an audio course subscription special coupon code to listeners of this podcast. Type the word KEYS for $20 off. With hundreds of audio courses on demand and new courses released weekly, it's only $59 per year with the code word KEYS. Visit SpeechTherapyPD.com and start earning ASHA CEUs today. Welcome to this episode of Keys for SLPs keys to a holistic approach to evaluating and treating EIPVFM. I'm your host, Mary Beth Hines. Before we get started, we have a few items to mention. Here are the financial and non-financial disclosures. I am the host of Keys for SLPs and receive compensation from speechtherapypd.com. I have no non-financial disclosures to report. Sharon D. Frank is the owner of Speech and Voice Center, which receives compensation for this presentation from SpeechTherapyPD.com. Sharon's non-financial disclosure is that she is a Buteco practitioner and a member of the Buteco Breathing Educators Association. And now here's a little bit about our guest today, Sharon D. Frank, M-A-C-C-C-S-L-P. Sharon specializes in exercise-induced paradoxical vocal fold motion, or EIPVFM, and voice disorders. She evaluates and treats EIPVFM using a holistic, systematic approach, including Buteyko breathing techniques. She's the owner of Speech and Voice Therapy in Foxborough, Massachusetts, which she founded over 20 years ago. Sharon has been an ASHA certified member for over 35 years, is a level three Buteco practitioner, and has co presented on this topic at various conventions, including ASHA and Boston Children's Hospital. Welcome, Sharon Frank. Thank you. Thank you very much. Well, we are so happy to have you here tonight. And I must say that since this podcast started, it kind of evolved about a year ago. I think we had our first episode in June, but ever since we decided to start this podcast, I have been wanting to do this topic because I think it is so important for SLPs to know about this topic in order to make referrals. Also, I'm sure that a few people listening tonight might want to specialize in this topic after this podcast because it is so interesting. I do have a personal connection to this diagnosis, and we'll touch upon that later in our episode tonight. So let's get started. Can you tell us, Sharon, about your journey as an SLP and how you came to specialize in EIPVFM? Thank you
1: for having me this evening. I'm looking forward to doing this podcast with you. I can't believe I'm saying this, but I've been a speech pathologist for almost four 40 years. So that's a little scary right there.
0: Congratulations.
1: Um, <laughs> uh, thanks. <laughs> um, I've worked in a variety of settings school, outpatient, hospital, some inpatient. And then I started a, my private practice in 1998. And I've always loved voice. I mean, ever since my first undergrad course in voice disorders, I was hooked. You know, in the whole field of speech pathology, I said, voice is it. I love it. That's it. I always had that interest and always had that specialty. And as far as, you know, getting into EIPVFM, I don't know. I think it just kind of fell into my lap with referrals that came to me. It really piqued my interest. It wasn't really something we were taught a lot about in school. And I also was always kind of athletic. I am by no means an accomplished athlete, but um, I always loved sports. And I like this because it was a little bit different. And the more I started working with these patients, I started to see that the progress is really pretty quick. And I also like that too, because as we know, in a lot of areas in our field, it takes patients sometimes a really long time to improve to the point before they're discharged. And so I kind of liked the fact that this was different and it was fun and interesting. And I saw people being discharged
0: sooner than for most other diagnoses we treat. That is an advantage as a practitioner and and as patients. Well, I'm so happy that you did specialize in this because you have helped so many people. And just a little side note, um, as I said, I was interested in this topic. So I asked someone who said, oh, I would love to present- but you really need to talk to so-and-so. And And then I talked to so-and-so and so and so said I would love to present, but you really need to talk to Sharon Frank because she is really a a specialist in this area and has, you have actually helped train a lot of other people in this area from what I understand or, or mentor.
1: Yes. I've had a course that I've taught and that's one of my passions is to keep teaching this type of information, this type of approach to dealing with this disorder, because I think it's it's a really good way to go about treating it. There's not one treatment approach that's good for everyone. I mean, there's this works for a lot of people, other approaches that work for other people too, but I just thought it'd be nice for people to have
0: knowledge of this other approach that's very helpful, holistic. Yes, holistic. For those listening who might be wondering, this sounds like exercise-induced vocal fold dysfunction, or it sounds like something else. There are actually a lot of names for this disorder. So can you identify some of the other commonly used names to help our listeners? Sure. Most of the time when patients call our
1: office, they say, hi, I've just been diagnosed with vocal cord dysfunction. So that's one term. The Most of the public, the general public refers to it as vocal cord dysfunction. I've also seen that written in medical records from ear, nose, and throat physicians or asthma allergy physicians, pulmonologists, has vocal cord dysfunction. So sometimes you see it like that. Other times you might hear it as what we just talked about, paradoxical vocal fold motion or PVFM. Also, there's exercise-induced laryngeal obstruction. So that's a term that's become more and more common in the last several years. So some people refer to it as EILO that's just like maybe the top 3 terms. I mean there's something like episodic laryngeal dyskinesia, psychogenic asthma, there's a bunch of them, but the most common ones with the general public is vocal cord dysfunction and then like i said PVFM or EILO. Okay. But they all essentially mean the same thing, which is you know that there's a closing a narrowing of the vocal folds that's happening during exercise when they're supposed to stay open. As we know, the vocal folds are supposed to stay abducted and they tend to move towards each other and narrow the airway at the gloss and tends to narrow. So that is what's happening. It's paradox, right? They're supposed to be opening or open, but they're closing. Mm -hmm. And they're supposed to be open during respiration in general. They're supposed to be open. So what's happening is that when they go to breathe in, it tends to close and narrow the airway, but it can also happen sometimes on
0: exhalation. Okay. Okay. Either one. Okay. Thank you. So in your practice, is there a typical profile of an EI-PVFM patient? There
1: most certainly is. (laughs) There most certainly is. More often than not, there's always the exception, but more often than not, The person's usually female, usually between maybe the ages of, say, 12 and 20, something like that. So definitely girls more than boys. Very goal-oriented, very driven, usually has very high self-expectations, highly competitive, not only in athletics, but in academics. May have a lot of other things going on on the side, other things they're involved in. And has also, I find, and other people find this too, self-imposed uh, high expectations. When I first went into this, to working with patients, with these patients, I was told by a colleague, I know, Sharon, it's the parents, you know, it's the parents that that put a lot of pressure on the kids to do really well in sports. There's a lot of pressure from the parents. So just beware. And I thought, okay, thanks for the heads up. You know, I'm all set. For this. And I tell you, I rarely see that. I'm not saying it's not there, but it's not that common at all. I see it's more self-imposed from the patients themselves. A lot of parents are saying, look, if you don't want to play division one in college, it's fine. If you don't want to do varsity, it's fine. If you don't want to do sports at all, it's fine. So interestingly, I've just seen the opposite. That's the typical profile. Sometimes it's a little different, but usually when a parent calls up and they say, my child's vocal cord dysfunction, I say, can I just guess, does your child have, I just go through the list I was just telling you and they go, how did you know that? <laughs> it's because everybody kind of calls it the same thing. So it, it is a generality. I see it probably 90, 85, 90% of the time.
0: Okay. Wow. And so you've had your own private practice, I think I said in the bio, 20 years? Going on 24 in September. Okay. Okay. And how long have you been specializing in EIP? This,
1: well, I've been a Buteyko practitioner since 2014, but I was seeing patients for this before that, maybe since
0: early 2000s. All right. So this is something, a diagnosis that is often misdiagnosed as exercise-induced asthma. Can you explain the difference to us? Let me first try and
1: clarify exercise-induced asthma, or EIA, from exercise-induced bronchospasm, EIB. And I am definitely not the expert in really talking about this, the difference between the two, but my understanding, I've seen the terms used interchangeably. Okay. by physicians too. And they even, if you look in the literature, they say there's not really a clear way of which way to word it. But from my understanding is that if you have exercise-induced asthma, you already had an underlying diagnosis of general asthma to begin okay. with, and that the exercise, your asthma kicked in with exercise, whereas exercise-induced bronchospasm, you you really didn't Have a diagnosis of asthma to begin with. You don't have any, but this just started with exercise. And so it's more exercise induced bronchospasm. In talking with an allergy and asthma physician recently, she said, you know, Sharon, really the more accurate term is really EIB versus PVFM. What they're finding is people having trouble with breathing, with the narrowing, but it's during or after exercise. So that's actually how they can get treated with inhalers at first, because the allergy asthma physician or, or doctor might think it's something like that. So that's why they may try inhalers first. But anyway, it's really more accurate term, I think, is is a bronchospasm okay. for people who are do not have an initial diagnosis of asthma. Okay. So the difference, there are actually many more differences than similarities between EIB, and EIPVFM. So with EIPVFM, there is difficulty mostly on the breath in rather than the breath out. Inhalers do not help people with PVFM. Some people say it makes it worse, anecdotally from my patients. Inhalers will help if you have EIB. Inhalers do not help with PVFM Most people, if you say, take one finger and can you point to the spot on your body where you feel like you have the problem, patients are going to point to their larynx. The larynx, center of the larynx, lower of the larynx, and also maybe upper chest. And with EIB, they don't point to their throat. With PVFM, they recover pretty quickly. If they're playing soccer and they're having trouble, they will sub out from the game and then they'll recover in a couple of minutes. And they'll go right back out. Whereas it doesn't happen with EIB. It takes longer to recover. Also, sometimes with PVFM, you'll get that strider, which is like that uh, uh, sound that you get when people are breathing in. And so you don't always have that, though, with PVFM, but not always, but a lot of times that happens. And then there are four things I want to mention that are very, Common with PVFM in my experience, which is again why I am a Bouteco practitioner. This will all come in together later, I think, in the podcast. But lightheadedness, numbness, or tingly sensation, in the extremities, visual disturbances like tunnel vision or getting squiggly lines or vision being off somehow, feeling a fullness in the ears and leg your legs feeling very, very heavy. I'm seeing that a lot with PVFM patients, EIPVFM patients, and that doesn't happen in EIB.
0: So those are some of the differences between the two. Well, thank you for clarifying. So, so many things of what you have just said have brought me to make me realize how common my daughter's diagnosis was. One of my daughters was diagnosed with EIPVFM, and I just want to Mention with her permission, she gave me her permission, her course, which when Sharon and I were talking, it is very common. So she was a competitive high school athlete. And the way you described the typical patient, she hit probably 90 of those targets was very typical competitive athlete and passed out on a hot September day and was sent to the trainer. The trainer sent her to the ER and the ER said, you have to be cleared by neurology and cardiology. Which, in explaining this, I do want to say you know I, I'm very thankful that we live in in the country that we live in, and we have excellent health care, and she did have the she had a very thorough workup, so I'm thankful for that thorough workup but anyway, so she went to neurology, she went to cardiology, and she was cleared, and it was determined at that point that she probably was dehydrated she you know played through the season with some of these occasional symptoms, and then in February she was at an indoor lacrosse game. And she passed out. It was determined by the facility that she should go in an ambulance to the ER, which she did. From that point, they wanted her to go back to cardiology and pulmonology and pulmonology diagnosed her working diagnosis was exercise induced asthma or bronchial spasm, as you said. So the trick was they gave her an inhaler Okay. So if you're playing in a game and you can't breathe and you're feeling lightheaded and your legs are heavy and you raise your hand to go out and then you go out and you sit down and you take that inhaler and you stop playing, it appears that the inhaler worked and you say, okay, I'm I'm ready. I'm going to go back in. And, and then the cycle would start again. It was misdiagnosed, but she did go to cardiology back to cardiology for a exercise test. She was hooked up to all the heart monitors and I think they were testing her lungs as well. But anyway, she was on, I checked with her, she was on a bike. And so the test was going to take about 20 minutes. So typical mom, I, you know, she got settled and I sat in the chair and I started doing something on my phone. And all of a sudden I heard, (laughs) and I thought the bike was breaking and she was going to fly off of it. So I like, jumped up. (laughs) Is Is, is the mic okay? And they're like, that's your daughter breathing. But I had never heard it because I was in the stands on the other side of the field. Uh, I had never heard actually what it sounded like. And it was really alarming. So anyway, the good news that day was that she was fine and they sent us to the ENT. And then the ENT said, I think you need to go see a speech language pathologist who specializes in voice and voice disorders. And so we finally were able to make that appointment in June. And on that day, we got the diagnosis from the SLP where we did another exercise test. They scoped her before, and then she exercised on a treadmill that day and then scoped her again. And you could see that the vocal folds closing and it was very obvious. And it was almost eight months later, And it was such a great day for her to have that diagnosis and the relief and to know that she wasn't imagining it because there were, it was such an unusual thing at the time. Since then, I have met other people who have had this, but no one around her knew it and she didn't understand it. And she kind of felt like people thought that maybe she was lingering. So anyway, that is my story, which um, is not very unique, is it? I wish I could say
1: it is. I really do. And I'm sorry that your daughter went through that. And I'm sure that was very terrifying for her and for you. It is something that I hear a lot from my patients. And I had one little boy who the town paramedics had a list when he was 11 of what classroom he was in at any point in time during the day because he had so many instances of this so that they would know exactly which classroom in the school to go to they knew oh, his amazing. his schedule every day monday through friday what room he was going to be in so they could go right to that room they look at the clock oh he's in science boom it's room 204 whatever and they would go right to the room so he ended up doing very well and they were very happy to know that they didn't need that schedule that paperwork in their office anymore so it can be very very severe with people close to passing out or like you said, passing out. And that's, that's terrifying. Plus it, it brings a lot of unwanted attention, right? You know, and kids just want to fit in. They just want to play their sport that they love. They don't want all this attention. So, Mm -hmm. Mm -hmm.
0: and they want to play, they don't want to be sidelined to get cured by the cardiologist, neurologist, et cetera. Mm -hmm. Right. Very, very interesting. And then of course, you know, after all this time and, and worry and concern, I was like, really? It's an SLP that we're going to. I'm like, where was I? I must have been asleep during that day in graduate school. But I started talking to other SLP friends and said, not only from you know graduate school, but just you know friends in general from after that time. And and very few people were from very familiar with it. A, a couple said, well, I remember something about it, but for the most part, people did not recall learning about it. Do you find that right. common? I know you've mentioned you've had some parents, some other parents who were SLPs. That made me feel better.
1: I've had about a dozen, about a, at least maybe more, a dozen parents who are speech language pathologists. And they ask the same thing, how did I miss this? I say, Don't worry about it. Unfortunately, you know, it's still not that well known, but there's a lot of kids in this country that have experienced it a lot. So, yeah, you are not the only SLP parent who's had a son or daughter with this, yeah, you know, very well, cool.
0: So I feel like this is a public service. This podcast, <laughs> so we can get the word out there. <laughs> right. All yeah. right. Um, so enough, enough about me and us. So, you know, our title today is "Keys to a Holistic Approach to Evaluating and Treating ELI, EL." E-I-P-V-F-M. See what so, I'm saying? See, that, yeah. that's why we
1: all need to agree on one term, which is, yes. yeah, I know. It's, it's, uh yeah, go ahead. It doesn't matter. Like I said,
0: whatever you want to yes, use. Yes, we know what we're talking about. So, right. <laughs> so, um, but holistic can mean different things to different people. So can you talk a little bit about what holistic means, the definition as you're using it?
1: Looking at, You know, (laughs) Merriam-Webster dictionary, um, holistic medicine is treating the whole person, not just focusing too narrowly on, on the symptom. And it emphasizes a connection between mind and body. And that's the approach that I use. And when you're looking at this kind of disorder, because it can be so complex, I think we need to, I find it helpful anyway, to look at it as more than just trying to get the vocal cords to open. I think that just having the vocal folds open is kind of like the tip of the iceberg, but let's look at really what's underneath and what may be causing this. So, and also because, you know, your daughter had more than one
0: time, right?
1: Of um, not being able to breathe Oh, and passing
0: out. Yeah. There were two times passing out, but yeah, it got to the point, especially during that lacrosse season in the winter when it was cold or, you know, spring, early spring, she had a hard time staying in the game for more than a few minutes. Right, so when you have that
1: repeated experience of, of fear and trauma, the body remembers that. Mm-hmm. It gets stored in the body, the body remembers that. And then what you can have, it can result in tension and muscle tension and change in body mechanics and posture and things like that. And that. And also that heightened fight or flight That heightened sympathetic part of the nervous system that's on high alert and that can throw off breathing. So, I think we have to really look at it from a whole person perspective. You know, most of the time, by the time people come here, they're so conditioned to have this problem occur that they say, Oh, it always happens when I'm, for example, 400 meters out or when I'm doing this stroke versus the other stroke in swimming. So, they're already thinking it's going to happen. Not if, but they're saying, I know, to themselves, I know, or even out loud, I know it's going to happen. Mm -hmm. So they're already set, their antennas are up, like, you know, so people may have the same symptoms when they come here to my office initially, but they all kind of arrived in a little different path. There also can be other things, traumatic things that may have triggered their breathing, Separate from sports, so I think you really have to look at the whole person. That's what I found helpful in
0: how I treat it. My experience. Well, thank you for clarifying. It is interesting, you know, when you describe the typical patient, you describe the whole person. You didn't describe anything about the laryngeal mechanism.
1: Mm. When you talk about signs and symptoms, I say it's not just, you know, symptoms are what the patient reports and signs is what the clinician sees. My own personal definition is not just the physical, it's also the psychological and emotional signs and symptoms
0: Mm -hmm. that go along with it. Well, thank you. And so what are your components of the holistic approach? Okay. So there's
1: four main components. One is Buteco breathing techniques. The other is manual or myofascial release therapy uh so manual therapy and again the focus on that is myofascial release it's actually been getting a lot of popularity in the last several years i know a lot of speech pathologists around the country who are doing getting this training in myofascial release also managing stressors and psychological considerations is another component and then applying applications for sports and life so but those are things like more for another day, except if we want to talk about manual therapy a little bit now and
0: the basis for that. Okay. And so you usually hit all four components with each patient you have.
1: Hmm. Hmm. I'd like to start actually with manual therapy, manual approaches. So as we all know, the body and the mind are attached. I mean, you know, they, <laughs> they, they talk to each other all the time, yada, yada, yada. And the body stores the good, but it also stores the not so good. So things like chronic illnesses or surgeries or other traumas or stressors can result, as I was saying earlier, in tension and asymmetry, and it can also affect, it can throw off the nervous system a bit with all of these things. So what myofascial releases, it has to do with, well, it has to do with fascia. So fascia is the connective tissue that goes over every muscle, vein, artery, nerve, internal organ, and it goes like head to toe. So we're like Spider-Man, if you think of it like that. So what manual therapy is with myofascial, it's very, very gentle, sustained, light touch. It's not massage therapy. And the clinician trained in it knows how to feel, Like kind of like listen with your hands and feel for where there's tension or where there's asymmetry so that you can allow that structure to unwind. Kind of like if I take my necklace, you know, and I go like this and it's all wound up, but myofascial, oh no, I can't get my finger out. <laughs> myofascial kind of, it unwinds it. And so then the structure can work well. So if I'm giving a patient say something to do with breathing, but their structure is off. Say I want them to do something with the larynx to get them to breathe better and well, but their larynx is really tight, and it's rigid, and it's not moving. It's not going to perform as well. And the other things I want to do down the road, so that's why I start off first with allowing it to kind of unwind and open up. And a lot of times, it's interesting, patients will say afterward, wow, wow. I feel like my throat just opened up, like I can actually breathe now. And you also see someone who may be coming in with breathing too much and too rapidly and too deeply, all of a sudden, their breathing gets slow and calm and easy, and many times they fall asleep. But that's besides the point. So I like to start with this manual therapy.
0: Okay. What are your sessions typically? 30 minutes, an hour, 45? 45 It depends. You know, I always start with that and then I move into the
1: buteco part because I feel it's a nice segue into what we want to do with
0: buteco. And are you able to teach manual therapy techniques mm. that they can do on their own?
1: Sometimes, yes. I mean, you can, but I think they don't get as as much benefit out of it as if you doing it to them. But there are some things that you can help them learn to do on their own at home, and they may get some benefit from it.
0: Yeah. Okay.
1: I just wanted to mention that I think hands-on is really critical. I think hands-on is very, very important. I don't think it's 100% needed all of the time in my experience, but I would much, much rather be seeing patients hands-on to make sure that's all ready. And the only reason I mention that is because in 2020, 2021, I was doing some telepractice. And I was able to successfully help patients through telepractice with this holistic approach, but I wasn't doing hands-on, obviously, and they still got better. But I've also done some telepractice with some patients without, and didn't do as well until I got my hands on them and then they did better. So my preference would still be starting with some sort of hands-on work and then moving to the Buteco
0: method. Okay. And just so our... Listeners can kind of visualize it. You actually have your clients on a on a therapy yeah. table, as you mentioned, they have a lot of tension usually to begin with, so I'm sure you must have to kind of talk them through the first time, okay, I'm going to be doing this manual therapy. Are, are most people receptive to it initially, or
1: Yes, yes, they definitely are. A lot of them fall asleep. like the hardest part is for most patients is getting off the table. and I I usually have a parent in the room so they can see what I'm doing and also I think it makes the patient feel better the first time and the parent feeling better because they can see what's going on yes and the parent usually has one of two responses either they're asleep sitting in the chair or when they're done they say can I go next (laughs) Um, and the funny thing is like patients will say oh I felt your hands you know moving this way and that way and it's not my hands aren't moving my hands are not moved. So if I have a hand like here in the upper chest and one hand here in the larynx, my hands don't move. So it's the, the fascia underneath that softens and things move and they feel like I'm moving, but it's really not. It's not me. It's not my hands. It's what's underneath the skin. It's above the muscles and all of that that releases. And again, because fascia is all connected, they could feel something in their foot
0: hmm that's very interesting
1: they could feel like little waves or pressure or changes in body temperature or all kinds of things it's it's like a human ouija board they're like a
0: human ouija board
1: it's <laughs> the best way to explain it but i've never had once my people have tried i've never had anybody say no i don't want to do that okay. i've had people say can we do this today instead of
0: going to the soccer field I say, no sorry <laughs> we're going to the soccer field <laughs> oh that's great so manual therapy, first and foremost, as long as it is in-person therapy.
1: Mm-hmm.
0: What's next? So Buteyko,
1: the holistic approach, you know, is it's we're talking about Buteyko breathing. And Buteko was the name of a doctor, Dr. Buteko, He was a Russian physician. And he, I don't want to go too much into detail with that because we don't have time, but he developed a program for how to Restore breathing, and so it's not how to correct dysfunctional breathing patterns. And he noticed that a lot of people who were ill, uh, very sick, were breathing more frequently, deeper than people who were healthy. And so we find in the research, I'll just back up a little bit here. Remember, I talked about those four symptoms of lightheadedness, heaviness in the legs, visual issues, things like that. Those are all signs of hyperventilation, of over-breathing, of breathing in more than what the body can metabolize. So there's an article by Parker and Berg, and there have been other studies too that have shown that a lot of patients who have this tend to have symptoms of hyperventilation. So the reason why I like this, and I've seen my patients have symptoms of it as well, And so the reason I like this approach is it really looks at balancing out the breathing. So it's getting below the tip of the iceberg. If, in fact, not for all of these patients, but if for so many of these patients, they're breathing in excess of what they can metabolize, then let's help them how to learn what they can, how to breathe so that they actually get more oxygen. So here is the part that people may need to replay back when they hear this, is that breathing more, like taking a bigger breath and holding it, is going to make you worse. Breathing more frequently, breathing deeper and bigger, is going to make your problem worse. You will actually get less oxygen throughout your body than more. It sounds counterintuitive. I had a swimmer come here once. She said, wait, I can't breathe. You just want me to breathe less? And I said, yeah. (laughs) And it has to do with biochemistry and carbon dioxide. And because when you overbreathe, your carbon dioxide drops. And when that happens, you don't get as much oxygenation throughout your body. And that's how you get symptoms. And that's all the science I'm going into. And I know they're going to have to play this back like four or five times. But in the time we have left, so the difference in philosophy between what this approach does is we don't want to just treat the symptoms. We want to get to the root of the problem. We don't want to just teach a rescue technique. We want to try to help the patient from ever having a problem in the first place. So it's more than just mechanics. It's more than just low diaphragmatic breathing. It's much more than that. There's, I'd say, maybe three different approaches, to my knowledge, of what's currently being Used in this country, I, I could be wrong, but my knowledge is there's something of more traditional approaches, which is maybe the patient is taught to sniff in and blow out with pursed lips, or sniffing in and blowing out, or saying a s or a sh or some other sound, or panting. I mean, I've I've seen a bunch of different things, yawning and throat stretches, things like that, and. The focus, again, is to get the vocal folds to open. The other technique is, and actually with that too, sometimes people are seen for a few sessions and they're told to practice these things several times throughout the day or a few times throughout the day to get in the use of practicing this. So when they're out in the field or whatever their sport is, they're able to incorporate it. Then there's another technique that involves kind of a two-step process. It's called elobi. It's like a biphasic inspiratory technique which also the focus is on opening the vocal folds. And it involves mostly mouth breathing. And it's kind of a two-step process of first a high resistance to a low resistance where they open the mouth big to then or take a big amount of air in afterward, after they have that small air resistance. And how that is different from buteco. Buteco is a lot of nasal breathing. So if we're trying to reduce over breathing, we're going to have nasal breathing. We have them to really encourage nasal breathing, light, slow, small, a lot of S's, smooth, steady, silent breathing, and all through the nose, in and out through the nose, not in through the nose, out through the mouth. That's another thing that sometimes you hear. So the goal is to breathe less, because again, if you're breathing less, you're getting more. And I don't want to go too much into the biochemistry on this, biophysiology, but you actually get more. And the goal of Buteyko is to optimize oxygenation, is to get oxygen throughout so that people don't have symptoms. And it's that mind-body connection, things like that. So I just worked with a woman this afternoon. She's going to be 18. Last week, she was running on the treadmill about a 12 and a half minute mile, all nasal breathing. Today, she was running at about an eight and a half minute mile, and then we had her do a sprint at about a 6.07 minute mile pace to sprint as if she was going down the field for 10 seconds, all fine nasal breathing, no problem. It doesn't always happen that quickly, though, I should say. She she skyrocketed from last week to this week. She could talk afterward, no problem. I said, give me your you know name, address, date of birth. She was talking like she had just been going out for a casual walk. So it's nice to see that. And then the other nice thing I like about Buteiko is it's very you can teach people what to do to help them get through, say, an SAT or take their driver's test or something else or how to become calm when your mom or dad is driving you to a track meet, you know, things you can do in the car so that you already start off the race calmer because everyone gets nervous. That's normal, but it's learning kind of how to keep that in check, in balance so that your sympathetic nervous system doesn't go like this. And then you're breathing, you got either too, too much or something like that. And you start off on the wrong foot. Mm-hmm. So, there are different ways to go about treating the disorder, but what I find in my experience is is I like the buteco because I feel like for so many of these people who seem to be over breathing, it really seems to be getting more at the root of the problem, and so they don't need to be rescued. they can just play their sport
0: right and the other breathing the traditional approach is called rescue breathing
1: it's more of a yeah of a rescue breathing technique so and and what I find that Many of the patients who come to see me may have tried that, said that they just, they just can't remember what to do when they're in the middle of about to pass out or the, when they're trying to score and they have this problem. They don't have the wherewithal to put it all together. They're already too far gone. It's already too late by that point. And they don't want to, again, have attention drawn to themselves. So mm-hmm. they found it just didn't work for them.
0: So the um, holistic approach approaches it not just on the field, but off the field before you're on the field or, exactly. or, or court or rink or pool or track, wherever they may be. Right, right, right. Speaking of which, mm-hmm. I think this is a very interesting point that you told me earlier that you actually go to the pool, the court, the rink, the track, the field for therapy. Can you talk a little bit about that? Sure. Uh, that's one of my favorite parts because
1: I, <laughs> you know, my tools of trade are not what they were before. My tools of trade are now uh, I have my pulse oximeter with me, uh, bullhorn, uh, whistle, the soccer ball, and all these things. I mean, that was not in my super duper collection when I first started. No. But it's so fun. <laughs> but it's so much fun. Right. And I bring them through easy. So maybe just dribbling with a soccer ball and then going faster and then actually creating more of a game type of experience where I actually turn into kind of a mean coach. And part of me is saying, go, go, and I'm yelling at go, 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 push it, push it, push it. And I go, where's your breath? Where's your breath? Where's your breath? I go, oh, let's try it again. You know, so I have them learn how to do both and, and it's a process. It is definitely a process of You know, working up that hierarchy to being able to just from laying down first in my office on the floor to sprinting down the soccer field. But that's my goal is to take them from A to Z. It's really incorporating a lot of different things. Sometimes I may have them jog, run, sprint, but they never know what I'm going to say. They don't know if I'm going to say sprint. They don't know if I'm going to say jog. They don't know if I'm going to say walk. And so I really try to create what they would do in practice or, you know, in the game. Sometimes I need a parent (laughs) or sibling
0: to help me out on the field. (laughs) Um,
1: I can't run as fast
0: as I used to. So do you have a name for your holistic approach besides holistic approach? Yes, it's called the PIE approach. P-I-E.
1: So P is for physical. I is for intellectual or cognitive, and E is for emotional, because when I was thinking about, you know, people said, Sharon, you have to call with something, and I really didn't know what, and then, you know, a friend reminded me that I really connect with patients at multiple levels. You connect with them physically, intellectually, and emotionally,
0: and I thought, huh, so I came up with Pi Approach. That's the name of it. Well, that is an excellent name. We talked about the Buteco breathing techniques, but that would be if we wanted to dive into that, that would be for another podcast or webinar. But what would you suggest to someone who learned about these tonight or knows a little bit about them maybe before tonight and would like to learn more?
1: Oh, sure. Well, the speech pathologist who has really spearheaded this and brought this, brought the Buteco training, has educated speech pathologists in Buteco breathing in the US and Canada is Hadas Golan and she is at Boston Medical Center. She has a webinar on level one Boutique, to become a bouteca practitioner. And there's a lot of information in there and it's it's very, very thorough and you you learn things about breathing that you just never look at breathing the same way again. I'm so thankful for her because she has changed the way I practice, and because of that, my patients have improved, and she's been doing a lot of training around the country with, with her technique and learning about buteco. and she's just phenomenal. What you learn from her is just amazing. So if people wanted to know, they could actually get in touch with me. They could email me, and I could then put them in touch with Hadas. would probably be the best way.
0: Okay. This is such an interesting talk. I'm loving it. Is it within our scope of practice to diagnose this, or do we need clearance from an otolaryngologist first? Very good question. Yes, I
1: always make sure before I work with anyone that they have seen an otolaryngologist for an exam of the vocal folds. I believe it's really important because there are other things that could mimic it, like subglottic stenosis, other lesions. Uh, I'm not talking about nodules, but other things that could be. Structurally wrong. So, I always tell parents if they have not had that done yet, they need to do that first. And then I need to have the ENT report sent to me before I see them. And I tell the parent too that most of the time the physician may not see it. They may not see it. They put them in the chair. If they don't do the whole exercising, they may just put them in the chair, anesthetize one of the nostrils, do a fiber optic, and not see anything wrong with the vocal cords. And they may look just fine. And I say, that's fine. They don't actually need to see it in action, but I just need to know that there's nothing structurally wrong at the level of the glottis or below that might be a reason why
0: they're having this breathing problem. I always do that, definitely. And just to follow up on that, so is the actual diagnosis of the EIPVFM from the otolaryngologist or is it from you? Most of the time in... The ENT reports, it will say, it
1: might say something like, everything looked fine. However, given patient's history, most likely this is consistent with vocal cord, and again, they'll say vocal cord dysfunction. So I evaluate them for that, and I see signs. So I might say signs and symptoms consistent with EIPVFM, but usually I also see it in the ENT report. Frequently, there's two pulmonology or asthma allergy, allergy reports that say the same thing as well. Okay. Because sometimes you'll see on spirometry, you'll also see signs of PVFM or upper airway blockage.
0: So you go out to the field, the rink, the pool, whatever the athletic arena with clients as a part of therapy, you don't actually attend their games but in working with athletes, do you ever have the opportunity to work with coaches?
1: I've had some coaches that come and observe. I've had a swimming coach that came to observe me working with the patient and understanding more about why I was doing what I was doing. And and I learned from the coach too about what they're trying to achieve and what I'm trying to achieve. And we both want to achieve the same thing. So sometimes they do come and observe. Sometimes I've had coaches that, are not that interested. And unfortunately, sometimes they feel the student or the patient isn't working hard enough unless they do have a problem to the point where they pass out. I've seen that too. Unfortunately, it's all over the place. But I have had also many phone conversations with coaches who do want to know what they can do to help. So I'm open to always talking to coaches. I'm more than happy to, because a lot of them don't, they don't understand. Like if most speech pathologists, if a lot of speech pathologists have never even heard this term, how can we expect, you know, coaches or the general public to even know what this means? So, and these exactly. kids are, they're in good physical shape. Mm-hmm. It's just that their respiratory level is not matching their overall fitness level.
0: Do you scope the clients in your therapy office? Like no. during an evaluation? No, you No, don't. I don't.
1: Okay. I don't. That happens before they get here.
0: Okay. In collaborating with your patients or clients, you actually have a YouTube channel that some of your clients have decided to pay it forward and demonstrate what has happened to them and the progress that they have made. Can you talk a little bit about that?
1: You know, most parents, as we were just saying, they, they'd they never heard of this. So we started a YouTube channel to try to educate and to get the word out because we realized there was a real need to educate the public about this. So it's been in existence since the end of 2015, and there are a lot of videos, uh, patient videos out there, which is really helpful, and I'm so thankful for patients who are willing to pay it forward, because I get calls from parents who say, oh, my God, you know, it wasn't until my daughter or my son or I saw that video that was, where my son said, Mom, look, it's, it's just what I have. That That's that's me. I have all those symptoms. It's the same thing, and I'm not the only one in the world. and where parents or patients have said that they must start crying, just realizing that, oh my gosh, there's somebody else who has this. So there's, we don't even, we didn't even put all the videos that we have out on the YouTube channel because there, we have a lot, but yes, there's, I think we've had about 124,000 views so far, which uh, my business manager says that's not that much, but I don't know. I kind of like it. Uh, So
0: well, yeah, if you've helped um, you know, over 100,000 people watching that video, I would say that's something to be proud of. Again, it's just I want
1: to get the word out there. want to get the word out there. It's It would be nice to not have people be on medications they don't need for years. That doesn't happen all the time, but I've heard that <coughs> happening more often than not. So we love getting the word out there.
0: Well, that's great. Thank you. Um, speaking of getting the word out there. I'm hoping that we might have an opportunity for you to return to speechtherapypd.com in the near future for a webinar to take a deeper dive. So I know that's just kind of hypothetical at this point, but if you could have talked for another hour tonight, for example, what other topics would you have discussed or would you like to discuss?
1: I would go into more about the more of an introduction to the biophysiology of dysfunctional breathing and over breathing. And to really help people understand more the basis of why I do Buteyko, because I know I just kind of glossed over that and I probably lost a lot of people at that point. So I would go more into detail about that and more into detail about manual therapy. And then I also have patient videos that I like to show. And I also am collecting some data for possibly a retrospective study of patients' breathing questionnaires that they complete before and after therapy. So I'm hoping to maybe put that together and see about maybe getting that published. But but that's the kind of stuff, just more
0: detail about everything I've talked about. In closing, I just want to say thank you, Sharon. We really appreciate your holistic perspective in evaluating and treating this disorder of so many names. Um. Yeah. <laughs> well, thank you. I was
1: really glad to be here.
0: Thank you, um, And it's so good for us as speech-language pathologists, even if we never work in a voice clinic, just to be able to know about this disorder and to help people, whether they're our clients, patients, or family members, make the proper referral. And mm-hmm. I know that you've inspired people to want to specialize in this area. So thank you for that as well.
1: I, I hope so. We need more of you.
0: So definitely get in touch. Well, thank you. All right. Have a wonderful evening. Thank you. You too. Thank you. Thanks for joining us here at Keys for SLPs, providing keys to open new doors to better serve our clients throughout the lifespan. Remember to go to speechtherapypd.com to learn more about earning ASHA CEUs for this episode and more. Thanks for your positive reviews and support. I would love for you to write a quick review and subscribe. Keep up the good work.